Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Inside the Boards podcast. This is another segment of our addiction podcast series. I'll be your host today. My name is Mariah Siddiqui. I have with me Dr. Stuart Bryant. How are you doing today? Doing great. Enjoying the little holiday break we've got here and hoping to get some recording done. I hope you had a good break and holiday and hopefully you and your family are safe from everything. Yeah, same for you. Thank you. Um, So today we'll be discussing opioids and opioid addiction. So do you have any thoughts on this topic before we get started with our questions? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, Mariah, uh, opioid addiction and the opioid epidemic are a, a hot topic, I guess, in medicine. You know, if, you've, if you're in medical school right now, you've probably had lectures on opioids and opioid addiction in particular. And, you know, kind of a while back, you might not have heard about opioid addiction. It wouldn't have been a concern even in medical school. But uh, as more and more information has kind of come up and more and more people have been dying from opioid overdoses and then subsequently other uh, medication overdoses related to opioids, it's kind of become a, a major problem in the United States and uh, you know around the world. The U.S. is a particularly bad location because we are the, the, one of the, the highest, I think we are the highest uh, prescriber of opioid medications. And, uh, you know, we get the medications into these people's hands and uh, then we don't do a good job with getting them off of it as well. So, it, it's definitely a problem. It causes a lot of morbidity and mortality. And, um, you know, I think it's equivalent to in my medical school, I think I learned about 40,000 people die every year um, related to opioid and drug overdoses. Um, and, you, you know, that's, that's a tragedy. And there's a lot that we can kind of do to really protect people against this and try to fight the the urge to uh, get people hooked on these drugs. Um, you know, I know nobody prescribes this medication with the intention that that's what's going to happen, but people need to be aware that when you're giving these drugs to people, uh, that's one of the potential options and it's got a heavy potential, um, especially with people who have previous histories of addictive uh, disorders or substance use disorders. Yeah, I agree. And and you're right that uh, more than 40,000 people died just from o- overdosing on opioids. I think in 2018, there was like 47,000 people. And a huge majority of that was actually from prescription medications um, and not just off the street. So that's kind of scary because you're right. You know, like we're, we're the ones giving these, uh, these patients these medications for their pain. Um, and when I was doing research on this topic, um, I saw that in the 90s and the early 2000s, there were studies that showed that opioids weren't addicting, which is why they became such a huge, huge drug to prescribe to people for pain, um, for short-term and long-term pain. And then now we're kind of suffering from those studies that weren't properly done because now everyone's being given opioids for any type of pain. Yeah, it, it's a... You know, it's one of those things where people were given the medication and they were told that this was safe and a unique and powerful tool for making people, you know, reducing their pain. The the pain is the fifth vital sign um, kind of campaign took off around the uh, 1990s as well, early 2000s, where, you know, we had to start rating everyone's pain and knowing 
um, you, you need to be treating people's pain. It's, it's not enough to take care of their disease or cure them or uh, help them with what they're going through. If you're not treating their pain, you're not doing a good enough job. And, and that was the, I mean, that was the story that we were told. And, you know, now, uh, you know, not to say that that's not true, but to, to put such a heavy reliance on treating pain uh, may have done us a disservice to, uh, you know, the public who, who thinks that they should not experience pain and the, the physicians who feel like they're compelled, like they almost have to take care of someone's pain in order to avoid, you know, uh, medical malpractice or anything. And, and this was really led by the, the uh, Purdue Pharma. I don't know if you're aware of them in the news, but the, uh, they, they're one of the, the first prescribers of opioids and they marketed them as non-addictive. So, these started to get really, really pushed as a pain medication and the, the pharma, pharmaceutical industry made a lot of money off of it and, and really kind of avoided taking massive penalties until just recently. Even now, like the, the settlements that are made against pharmaceutical companies isn't really impactful compared to the costs that they've uh, you know, really had on the, on the population. Exactly. And I think like over or close to like half a million people have died since um, for, the, for the past like decade or so, according to the statistics that I was reading, which is a lot of people, you know, half a million people is a lot. And yeah. I'm glad that they're finally going to be held accountable for, for what they did. Do you have any thoughts on, on why opioid addiction is such a huge thing in, in specific groups of people, depending on the location or the area? Or do you feel like it's just an overall, like everyone can get addicted to it? Do you have thoughts on it? Like, is there any genetic component behind addiction? Um, any other sort of like socioeconomic relation or correlation? Yeah, I mean, all of those, uh, we tend to do a lot of these studies where we look at demographics and we see who are the people most at risk. And then typically the people of uh, certain ethnicities, Black, Hispanic in particular, and then people with lower socioeconomic uh, demographics, the, the poor, those who do not can't afford good medications, good treatments uh, to spend time even going to see the doctor. Uh, those are definitely the people that are most at risk. So I, I work in San Francisco right now. You know, there's a a large homeless population, and if you if you pass them on the street, a lot of them are just peddling drugs out in the open, and uh, it's a real tragedy to see. Uh, and you don't feel safe in particular, but you know that they're not in a position to really be getting help. And uh, to be honest, getting help is honestly the it's the that's a higher cost than just continuing the habit. So you know the system's not really set up to protect people once they've become addicted. And uh, you know we do have services. There are rehabilitation um, services. There is uh, counseling services. There are detox services. But you know some those take time. They take effort. They take money, and they take a certain willpower. And a lot of people you know really aren't able to have those resources to even begin with. So from the perspective of who gets these and how they get affected, you know, the or worst case scenario is going to be the, the person that is, uh, has been injured. They, they require the medication for a brief period of time while they have their injury or potentially after surgery. And then they fall off the doctor's radar and they just end up getting medications from other people 
Um, they get them from the street. Uh, they get things like uh, heroin and fentanyl to kind of substitute their pills that they were previously using. And, uh, you know, we really don't have any way to keep them accountable and stay uh, in touch to kind of get them the help they need anyway. Uh, so I, I work in orthopedic research. I, I deal with, you know, a lot of surgery patients who are on narcotic medication for a brief period of time. And, you know, I've seen a, a, a number of those cases where they, the patients are contacting me in, you know, a lot of pain and they've been on the medications for months now and they just don't feel like they're able to come off. And, you know, when they talk to you about what they're experiencing, you can tell that they're, they're detoxing and that's why they need the pain medication. It's not just that they're in pain. It's, you know, they're having all of these withdrawal symptoms and they feel like, you know, they just need, they just need the medication to get them through the time period that they're in and then they'll handle it. And for a lot of people, they'll just never get the time to really handle it, even though they'll say something like that. And, and you try to help them and eventually you have to cut them off. And if you haven't gotten them the resources they need, they can turn to other less official routes of getting the medications and, you know, eventually end up in really bad places. Exactly. It seems like a, a vicious cycle of some sort where you can't fully take them off right away because of their pain and their withdrawal. But also the more you give them the medication, the more addiction that they, um, the more addictive they get. So um, I just have a question. So in your work, when you have a patient, what would be the indications for you to prescribe opioids? Which, which medications would you prescribe for how long? How do you gauge that when you have a patient who's in pain? So, yeah, it, it, well, it definitely depends on where their pain is coming from. Um, if they are like a long-term pain patient, They've had pain medication for years. They they follow up with a a regular like primary care physician. I typically like to let the primary care physician handle that kind of medication use, mm -hmm. just because it's much safer for them to do it and manage it because they're going to stay in reliable contact. They can identify if there's a problem and they can get them the help that they need. Working uh, in surgery, I, I feel like we we work with the patients for a briefer period of time. So if someone comes to see us as a new patient and they're looking for pain medication, they've got to be a, a candidate for surgery. They probably need to be following up with us pretty regularly. And the goal would be to get them through the pain until they get surgery and then through the pain after the surgery and to you know wean them off afterwards. For a typical like elective case of surgery that we're having, uh, so I, I work a lot with sports medicine and we'll, we'll give people maybe, you know, seven to 10 days of pain medication. Part of that is dictated by insurance. Part of that's dictated by the patient. And, you know, patients end up acting differently. You, you give someone, you can do the same surgery on two people and it look almost identical and one person will need two days of pain medication and be done. You know, usually the first three days after surgery are the worst for a patient, but, and, and then they, they get over it and they're, they're getting better and that they're able to manage it with things like uh, ibuprofen or Tylenol. And then others are... Uh, you know, they kind of get in this vicious cycle where it's, they get a little bit of pain, they take a pill, they, they just continue down that path of any little bit of pain is just not, they're not willing to tolerate. And then they end up on it for weeks or a, a month at a time. 
Uh, so everyone's different. I do think that if you have people who are have more of a, you, you said, you know, are there genetic reasons for people to have uh, addiction? And I, I think the human brain is sort of wired for addiction. You know, a part of like your evolutionary biology has driven us to be reward seeking individuals who are, you know, more willing to take risk and, you know, accept those for those rewards and the the whole like frontal lobe and reward pathway is designed to be to be an addictive personality so you know something like alcohol use or opioids anything you know the the reward of taking it the relief of taking it uh the the brain has basically been designed to do so you know genetics aside um it's very likely for anybody uh just being human uh, I do know that being being a male puts you at even greater risk for that. You know, I'm, you know, I can't exactly comment on why that is, but it's one of those factors that people find. And male and female drug use differs a little bit, uh, and we can get into that a little bit later if we want. But being human is the the main factor that makes us addicted to things. And then in terms of like what I or our practice gives patients. More often than not, we use a, a medication called Norco, which is a which is like a, a, a Vicodin, uh, which is mixed a, a mixture of hydrocodone and Tylenol. We typically give that, and then you know, hopefully over time, we're able to change them to either just Tylenol or to uh, an NSAID like ibuprofen for pain control. You know, I really focus on making sure patients are using other things for pain control, so. Uh, after surgery, you get a lot of swelling in your extremities that are that have had surgery on them or had a procedure. So, you know, trying to reduce their swelling, trying to reduce um, the pain with things that help numb the numb the area, like ice. Uh, ice can be a really effective uh, modality for just reducing pain a little bit. So, even if you get people's scores to to notch down uh, one or two points, you're, you're really making a big difference long term in whether or not they're going to end up needing these medications. You know, the, the scariest ones are when a patient has a history of addiction or substance use and you're trying to figure out how to properly prescribe medications for them. And I'd say that that has to really be decided with the patient, with um, their primary care and between you and them as well, just to make sure that everyone's on the same page of how you're going to handle it so that, you know, when something does go wrong, you you have your answer for how you want to do things. It's better to have that planning in place beforehand than uh, someone to be contacting you six months after a, after a surgery, still trying to get more medication when uh, they're the only patient in that group that's had that kind of surgery who's getting it at that time. Uh, you, you really want to help prevent that. And starting early is the, the the key to that success. Okay, I see. And and that was actually my next question, um, which was if if you had a patient who was already addicted to uh, different medications, whether it be opioids or benzos or anything, like would you consider things like tramadol or or other types of lesser effective, I guess, opioids, or would you just skip the opioids altogether and and try to go to the NSAIDs and and those kind of medications? Yeah, I, you know, it really depends on the the surgery too and the situation. So I can't you can't I can't give you any blanket rules here that are going to apply. Not for, you know, particularly for something like a, a board exam or step one. You know, certainly if a a situation where you might see like a step one question where a patient presents to the emergency and they have a history of 
like a like a substance use or an opioid addiction, and they come in with like a broken arm and basically the the conclusion that you've drawn is that they broke their arm with the the hope of getting opioid medication or something and you know those are cases where you may consider not giving the med- medication to the patient to you know help get them you know, even though that's what they need it's just because they they resulted to this uh self injury to acquire the medication uh that's feeding that with the by giving them what they want isn't really going to help the situation. You, I mean, you obviously need to fix their arm and you do need to treat their pain, but using the, the opioid or whatever they're asking for to do so might not be the best use. For different surgeries require different amounts of pain control, obviously. So, you know, one of the inst- instances where I've seen a patient with a difficulty with medication afterwards, they had had their hip replaced and they were just dealing with a, uh, a lot of continued pain. Uh, they're about three months out and, you know, they're just having those uh, detox like symptoms. And, it, you know, I think if you've already had a conversation, it's a lot easier to make sure that they're, they're aware of what's going on and, you know, talking to them about other medication use and weaning them off is the most important thing. So, uh, in those patients, I typically would try to get them on a lower dose or lower form of the medication like tramadol or something just ibuprofen or just Tylenol just to help reduce their, their opioid use. And if, if they're addicted and they're experiencing withdrawal symptoms, um, you know, they're not going to want to just cold turkey stop these medications because they're going to experience a lot of symptoms. And while those symptoms really can't cause death in most people, they, they really can uh, create a lot of problems and a lot of pain. And most people are just so miserable that they, they need to use the medications again. Do you know like the the basic uh, signs and symptoms that people have when they're withdrawing? When they go through withdrawal, they get like irritated. They have flu-like symptoms. They have like their pupils dilated. I'm trying to think. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. I remember like agitation, flu-like symptoms, GI symptoms because opioids cause like constipation. So then they would have um, diarrhea and a few like they would get tachycardic, hypertensive, things like that. Exactly. And, and I, I think, I mean, there are plenty of these that we could go through and, and I'll leave it for if we get a question on it, I can kind of help uh, make it easier for our listeners just to remember, you know, which symptoms go with which with overdosing or withdrawal. Um, but I'll save that. But yeah, if you have those kind of flu-like symptoms, the, you know, anxiety, the irritability, uh, and you, you mentioned some of the autonomic symptoms as well. Those are all uh, good signs of withdrawal. Yes. Yes. And I really like what you said earlier about human beings all being very, uh, having very addictive personalities. I think that's very true. And uh, our brain makes, you know, our own opioids as well, the beta endorphins, the encephalins, things like that. So it's just, it's really crazy that we have these being made in our brain and then we need exogenous ones as well in order to, I guess, satisfy our addiction. And in regards to the the actual mechanism of action and the pharmacological pathways, do you have any anything you want to add about that? Do you want to talk about like how they work or anything specific? I think if we have any questions on it, we can go into that. What I will say is another, um, you know, one of the things that I, I think doesn't come up very often with pain control is the the use of SNRIs. 
And, you know, when you kind of look at these patients who have exhausted pain control options and they're, they're looking for opioids or they're looking for something stronger. And uh, as a doctor, your suspicion is that they should not be using these in any way at this point. SNRIs can be a, a good alternative for these patients. So, um, duloxetine, I think there was a trial where they looked at duloxetine and a placebo for pain relief. And they found that people that were taking duloxetine actually had a very significant reduction in their, uh, their pain levels. Um, some as high as 50% just with the use of that medication. And, and I think that gets really back to the fact that, you know, we don't have a pure understanding of how these medications all work. Obviously, if you're using an SSRI, there are some medications you have to avoid with uh, with opioids. But uh, in general, you know, the thought that you might get some tickling of mu receptors or pain control from serotonin blocking or norepinephrine blocking is uh, uh, not unreasonable to have like a hypothetical situation where that would be reasonable to have or occur. Uh, so, you know, there are other ways to control people's pain. There are like the nerve stimulators or the TENS units as well that provide just some ways of, you know, kind of overexciting nerves and leading to uh, a reduction in pain because it, it just sort of, your, your brain just sort of tunes it out after a while. And, you know, for skin things, you think about like the capsaicin creams or something that mm -hmm. kind of leads to a numbness after a while as well. Um, so, there, there are other ways to treat pain. It's really important to know where their pain is coming from and uh, is there another way that you could be potentially treating it as well? Yeah, you're absolutely right. <clears throat> Alternatives are, are very important to consider, especially with this kind of, you know, opioid crisis. So hopefully they have more research being done on this. So that way, like in the future, we have other less addictive alternatives to pain medications. Um, yeah, there was an exciting drug that, or well, exciting. There's some exciting news recently about a, a new class of um, pain control medication. Uh, and that's coming down the pipeline. And I guess we'll see if that actually turns into anything. But uh, if we do have other ways to treat pain, then, it, you know, depending on if it has an addictive quality or not, which, you know, hopefully the, the prudent research will show whether or not that's the case, um, then maybe we'll have some other tools that are in our arsenal to really kind of fight things like pain and uh, prevent things like opioid abuse. Yes, hopefully. Fingers crossed for that. Do you want to do a question? I can read a question and then we can... Um, yeah, absolutely. So, the question is, a 37-year-old male presents to the clinic for treatment of an opioid use disorder. It is his first appointment with you and he states that he last injected heroin one hour prior to the appointment. He reports a past medical history of a fractured pelvis sustained in a car accident two years ago after which he was placed on oxycodone for pain control. Other than that, his past medical history is unremarkable. Other than an elevated blood pressure in the office this afternoon of 140 over 80 and some dental caries, his physical exam is normal. In terms of his previous pain management therapy, mu receptors mediate which pharmacodynamic effects in the CNS. So is it A, euphoria and pupil dilation? B, analgesia and respiratory depression, C, coughing and sedation, or D, decreased oxygen saturation and increased heart rate. So when you okay. say like this, it's basically just asking about when the mu receptors are activated, how does that affect the CNS? 
Yeah, that's uh, essentially the gist of the question. It's very straightforward here, depending on if you know the receptors, but just to kind of make it a little more complicated, let's go through it. So, in, in general, this patient, this is kind of the classic situation that I was talking about with the, the case of surgery. He uh, was is coming in to be treated. He's just been using heroin recently. Uh, heroin's actually not that common. Uh, seen in its pure form. Most people are getting hand, their hands on things like uh, fentanyl or something else if they're using street drugs like that. <laughs> but for the purpose of these kind of questions, you may see something like heroin. So, he previously fractured his pelvis in a car accident and that's why he was placed on the pain medication. It doesn't say whether or not he had surgery for that, but if he was, if he did have surgery, that's a, a very uh, significant fracture. That's a lot of, that's a big surgery. So, it's not unreasonable that he would be placed on that medication for oxycodone just to control his pain afterwards, uh, regardless of whether or not he had the surgery. If he had fractured his pelvis and he wasn't placed on a medication, he may have avoided this kind of situation. But it, you know, at the same time, you're trying to make people comfortable after these kind of injuries. So it, it's not they didn't they weren't wrong for putting him on this medication, right? Right, right. It's just the fact that he wasn't able to come off of it and he may have been lost to follow up. Uh, you'll find that trauma patients in general, you know, he's a car wreck, but you're not, you're not really sure about his demographic. But sometimes you, you get these trauma patients that just don't, they, they don't always show back up uh, after their injuries. And um, you gave them a very large prescription of this medication and sent them on their way. That could be the situation uh, that leads to an addictive, uh, an addiction. And they may have gone to other providers with the with similar complaints in order to continue that until they ran out of the medication, at which point they kind of turn to these more street medications like heroin. So for him, he's got he's a little hypertensive. He has some dental caries. Um, so that, I mean, that's just kind of showing him as uh, in a bit of a, a disheveled place with the dental caries. But you know, nothing here that's terribly remarkable. And then the, the, this is kind of what you'll find is this is called a, this is called a pseudo question uh, where they give you all this information and then you, they ask you something that's not really re related to it. So here it's asking about the mu receptor mediating, uh, which yeah, I mean, sure that you could say his previous medication uh, is related to that, but uh, it's kind of a, it's kind of a false question almost. Right. You could just read the last line and answer the question. <laughs> Right. Um, so, the, the vignette has, it doesn't have a whole lot of significance here. Uh, a, a better question might have been like, in terms of this patient, how should his, you know, pain medication have been managed or something? But, the, you know, that would be a longer, longer answer question too. Um, but anyway, getting back to the, the mu receptor, there are, there are three kinds of receptors in the brain that are handle endorphins, right? Do you know the three? Uh, mu, delta, and kappa. Right. They're all um, Greek alphabet letters. So, whether or not that matters, you know, mu receptors are the ones that are considered the primary pain uh, receptors and, and they help with, you know, giving the endorphin response to relieve pain. So, analgesia is going to be your, your obvious answer. The, the less obvious one, but also making sense here is uh, respiratory depression. And while I don't remember the exact pathway that mu receptors act on the respiratory center, it does depress it. And having more uh, mu activation can lead to a, a decrease in the uh, respiratory rate of a patient. 
This doesn't necessarily lead to a corresponding decrease in their ventilation, but they do breathe slower. So, uh, interestingly, calling it respiratory depression, you know, until they're in an overdose state, they, they're really quite able to ventilate on their own. Uh, they're just breathing slower and deeper. All right. And for board's purposes, like it also like would cause a rise in the carbon dioxide. Um, it could possibly lead to intracranial pressure, uh, an increase um, in ICP. But yeah, that's aside from this question. I just wanted to mm-hmm. throw that in there. Right. So euphoria and pupil dilation, what does that make you think of? So pupil dilation, I normally think of cocaine for that and same for the euphoria i believe or some sort of withdrawal but i don't think you have euphoria with withdrawal so either for the pupil dilation you'd be withdrawing from an opioid or or you'd be on like cocaine yeah the other one i think about is like mdma and then coughing and sedation what is that does that bring anything to your mind Mm, no (laughs) i can't think for coughing and sedation Decrease oxygen saturation and increase heart rate. Those are pretty autonomic. So, you know, you could have those with a lot of different things, but you, you may see it in something like a, uh, like an overdose. And then diarrhea and elevated blood pressure. Does that give you anything, anything in particular? For diarrhea, I would think like if you were drawing from opioids or I know certain amphetamines can cause it, withdrawal of certain drugs can cause it. Yeah. So exactly like a, an amphetamine or, um, you know, I think a withdrawal from an opioid. So like the, the mu antagonist instead of mu agonist could cause these symptoms. Uh, and I'll, I'll kind of get into the, the differences here that the, the way I like to think about opioid intoxication and withdrawal. Um, uh, you know, I kind of see them as opposites, you know, two sides of a coin. The easy way to think about it is when with you're withdrawing, everything really opens up. And uh, when you're intoxicated, everything really closes down. So, let, let me walk through that to make that a little bit more clear. So, when, when you're intoxicated, everything's closing down. You're, you're, you're drowsy. You're constipated. Uh, you're lethargic. Your pupils are constricted your respiratory rate is depressed, those sort of things. So, everything kind of goes down in the drive. Pupils get smaller. So, everything seems to be moving in the direction of lower activity. And then when you're withdrawal, everything is kind of reversed. Uh, so, you're agitated, you're, you're anxious, you, you can't sleep. You know, rather than having constricted pupils, you might have really dilated pupils. You get those kind of sludgy symptoms where you, you know your eyes are watering, your nose is running, uh, you're, you're yawning, you're opening up your mouth really wide, right? Right. Um, you have fever. You're, you know, really unable to to eat or anything, and your your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate goes up, uh, your pain goes up. Um, so all of those things kind of to me feel like opening up or elevating, whereas um, intoxication is depressing. I think that's a helpful way to remember it. Yeah, that's um, a really good way to remember it, honestly. And that that goes the same for for mu agonism and mu antagonism. So a a patient that you're giving uh, a Narcan dose to might experience some of these 
these antagonistic or opening up signs and symptoms. And that, that can actually tell you that uh, maybe you've done the right thing for them in terms of helping with their, uh, you know, their respiratory depression when they're, they're at a, a very high level of opioid uh, overdose. Okay. Okay. I see. That's, thank you for that. That's a very good way to close. Would you want to talk about how we would go about um, handling opioid intoxication and opioid withdrawal? Yeah, so this has kind of become more of a a provider, uh, a first responder role, um, but it, it can certainly happen in the in the medic in the emergency room or if someone um, ODs right there in the hospital too. You know, in the the worst case scenario, it's like a patient got uh, they got way too much medication for some reason. But you know what you might see in those in those cases is there incredibly drowsy, you know, they're not really making much sense. They, you know, their speech is slurred. They, they look like they're, you know, they're falling in and out of sleep and, and their respiratory rate is, you know, extremely low. Uh, if their pupils are all constricted, they don't seem to be alert and rousable. Uh, then you're, you're concerned that they're going into a coma and could proceed to have something um, like a poor outcome like death. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you see those patients, uh, you have to have a differential for why that's going on. And certainly there could be other reasons um, other than just opioids. But if you're, you know, if you have a younger patient with this sort of situation and they don't have any reasonable past medical history that would assume a, a situation like that and they don't have anything like a, uh, a brain mass or something that could cause these symptoms in another situation, you, you can almost quickly identify, you can quickly identify that it's a opioid related and start to, to treat the patient. Right. And you're going to treat this like any other trauma or quick first response patient where you're, you're going to start with your ABCs. You're obviously going to make sure that they have a secure airway, uh, make sure that they're able to breathe, make sure that their pulse is running, everything like that. Mm-hmm. In the case of these patients, as soon, the sooner you identify them, the, the sooner you can uh, give them a, a dose of uh, naloxone or Narcan. And um, when you give them naloxone, you'll see that their respiratory rate will improve pretty dramatically. Okay. Um, you know, in some cases, they may have extreme pain or they may just rouse a little bit more. But their, their O2 and their saturations are going to, going to improve. And if they don't, there, there are two situations that you can think about. You can think about that they're either so, they've either had such high of an overdose that they need more of the medication or something else is going on. Okay. Um, so, some patients will get multiple rounds of uh, naloxone therapy. And as it wears off, you know, if they have a lot of opioids circulating in their system, they may fall back into these overdose kind of signs and symptoms as well. So, the, the naloxone can potentially wear off and then the patient become resedated. Right, right. So, ultimately, you have to carefully watch them. You may consider putting them on a ventilator or something just to suppress their, uh, you know, to support their ventilation. But you, you, and then you're, you're kind of treating them symptomatically to work on their blood pressure. Their autonomic system is kind of going to go high, haywire as they withdraw from opioids and you know, kind of sedating them, controlling the pain in different ways, uh, and, and making sure that they they don't have any other um, problems going on is going to be a, an important aspect of that. And just for the board's um, sake, I, I think 
I just wanted to add naloxone to our listeners. Um, it's the inverse agonist that binds to the mu receptors, normally used to reverse opioid, opioid overdose. Um, I believe it's given IV, and I believe you'd want to give it slowly, right? So they don't start to like go through a withdrawal syndrome, or is that that you would want to give the IV naloxone a little bit slow? I'm not totally aware. I know there's also a nasal formulation of it. Uh, I'm pretty sure that you just give it all at once in the, especially in like the first responder kind of situation. I don't think that they have like a, they don't titrate it or anything like that. I think they just administer the dose at which point you you will see uh, whether or not it's affecting the, the patient at that point. Like I said, they may need multiple doses of it. Um, but it's going to hopefully, you know, it, like you said, it's a competitive opioid antagonist. Uh, it works on all the opioid receptors, so not just mu receptors, um, uh, which is, a, you know, kind of, I guess, a, a little tidbit fact. And then, um, you know, it's mainly for reducing or reversing the opioid toxicity when they're overdosed. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, naloxone is the the Narcan, the kind of first-line therapy drug. And then there's also now Trexone. That we could talk about there, you know, there's a, a pill form of naltrexone and a intramuscular injection form of naltrexone. Those are, that's for more of a maintenance therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can use it for overdose, but it's, you know, it's not as effective. It's not as fast and it's harder to administer. Okay. Uh, so, it may be easier, you know, the, the Narcan is kind of your first line and then you may put someone on naltrexone as a way to uh, keep them off opioids long term. Right, exactly. And what about um, like for the withdrawal? Would you consider like buprenorphine, uh, methadone? How would you um, tackle if someone was going through opioid withdrawal? Yeah. So I mean, there there are different ways that you can treat uh, long, you know, withdrawal. And the the way that we're currently kind of doing it is we're titrating out the withdrawal to, you know, kind of put it over a long period of time, but depressing the symptoms enough that uh, a patient is able to kind of get through it uh, without having like that terrible cold turkey kind of feeling. Um, What that results in is a lot of patients getting a long-term dose of these medications uh, before they're really able to kind of come off it altogether, right? Right. So, you, you know, the thought of using methadone is um, methadone has a, a extreme, it's a long acting opioid antagonist. So, it, it's a full mu agonist. It's long acting and it will suppress those withdrawal symptoms. There's, you know, it's harder to overdose on it, but it, it's, it is still a very dangerous medication if you get a large dose of it, particularly because the, the effects don't wear off for a long time. Right. Um, so, you know, you potentially can give a patient a dose of it and then they have good control. They're not having symptoms or they're slowly tapering on those symptoms. Um, so, they have only mild symptoms of opioid withdrawal. And then you you have them kind of decrease those doses as they are able to not experience the symptoms anymore. Uh, and the, the goal is to get them all the way down to zero and no, no longer using an opioid. Methadone is the, the, the ideal one for, for step if they're pregnant or, you know, have a child and they're, they're trying to control for opioid dependence, uh, we typically use methadone. Oh, okay. So, pregnancy, methadone. Okay. And then there are, um, 
you know, buprenorphine and uh, suboxone, which is buprenorphine plus naloxone therapy, are are two other um, kind of options. Most, you know, it's not as often that you see someone on just buprenorphine, but that's a partial mu agonist. Uh, it similarly has that kind of long-acting affinity. But because it is a, a partial mu agonist, they could potentially, you know, if they're still taking opioids, they, they could just use it as another opioid. Oh, so that's um, where you get the naloxone. What we, were, what we were finding is that, you know, people were just using that kind of as uh, with their opioids. Uh, it really wasn't working as well to get people to decrease their use of it. Being a partial mu agonist, though, is a little bit safer than, uh, than like an opioid because it doesn't cause, it can't cause as much like um, of the overdose-like symptoms. It can't have that full effect like mm -hmm. methadone could, but it could be combined with other medications and it's just not as helpful. Suboxone, therefore, you know, kind of added this naloxone therapy with the buprenorphine. So, that's an antagonist and a partial agonist. And, you know, I think the way it works is it gets you a little bit of the, the antagonism which prevents you from taking another medication and getting that the getting those effects of an overdose. But what they can cause is if you are using it um, and you've been taking an opioid, you could precipitate withdrawal by taking the naloxone, right? Right. So one of the keys to to taking it is that they have to be off opioids for a time period before they can start it. Oh, okay, I see. Let me but. If they have started it, if they've made it to the point where they can start that medication uh, and continue it, potentially as long as they, even if they if they continue it indefinitely and then they use an opioid because they they lapse, they they're not going to have the um, the endorphin um, effect of the opioid and potentially will you know not relapse. Okay, that makes sense. Um, do you have any? Thing you want to talk about in regards to neonatal abstinence syndrome? Where I do not. I mean, we can talk a little bit about it, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, you're treating the the kids get the kids get better, and I do think they use uh, methadone in some of those kids. Yeah, I think they use morphine, PO, and then second line phenobarbital or clonidine. Mm -hmm. Looks like it helps with some of the withdrawal uh, symptoms. Yeah. So, clonidine, do you remember what kind of drug that is? That alpha-2 um, agonist. Right. So, being that um, it lowers um, autonomic symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. By blocking them, uh, by blocking the alpha-2 and that can help decrease some of the unpleasant like autonomic symptoms from opioid withdrawal. Uh, it does get used some in adults as well, but it's typically not it's not as important, I guess, for this kind of discussion here. Okay. Yeah, we'll go ahead and do the next question. So, a 52-year-old male presents to the ED with suspected opioid overdose. His friends call the ambulance, which transported him to the hospital. Naloxone was given in the field, which reversed most of the symptoms. At this time, he is still disoriented and is unable to answer questions. A person experiencing an overdose of this type would be most likely to exhibit which of the following triads of signs and symptoms? A, medriasis, dry mouth, and sedation. B, euphoria, tachycardia, calmness. C, shallow breathing, unconsciousness, and meiosis. Or D, itchy skin, rhinorrhea, and confusion. 
Hmm. Okay. So just to kind of go over this again, a a 52-year-old, he is suspected of an OD. He was given naloxone, which reversed the symptoms, um, but it doesn't tell you what the symptoms the patient had, right? And then it asks you, you know, what would you expect? Um, So we already kind of hit on this earlier. I talked a little bit about the opening up of, you know, withdrawal and the closing up of overdose. So, you, you know, the things that we think about for closing up, you you have that depression, uh, that uh, lethargy, or you may drift out of consciousness or have an altered mental state, and you know respiratory depression, pupils get constricted, et cetera, et cetera. Right. right. So in this case, medriasis is open, you know, dilation of pupils, dry mouth, and sedation. Uh, the sedation works, but the other two, you know, don't really aren't really um, associated. With overdose, um, do you know what that's referring to? I'm not sure, actually. So I think this is referring to um, marijuana intoxication, I and then see. so medriasis, pupil uh, dilation, dry mouth, and then sedation. Okay. Um, yeah. The for sure. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm I'm putting it more on the dry mouth and sedation. I'm not as sure about the medriasis, and then euphoria, tachycardia, and calmness. So, we know that you wouldn't be tachycardic, calmness. I'm, I'm not sure if that means they're very zen or if they're just, you know, yeah. close. I don't know. I mean, that's how I, I take it though. Okay. And then euphoria is just pleasure. So, you know, tachycardia, euphoria, calmness, this is like an MDMA. Okay. And then itchy skin, rhinorrhea, and confusion. I'm actually not sure about that one. I don't know which one would cause itchy skin unless it's a withdrawal. I don't I don't know. Or is this like the one where we like feel like there's bugs crawling on us? Is that what they mean by itchy skin? <laughs> well, it goes yeah, it goes with that, I think, yeah. Uh, so, I'm just going to double check here. Uh, I think it's a is it PC I was thinking of PCP. Itching skin can come from a lot of things. Um, yeah, but the 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 one that I was thinking about and it's kind of noted here is uh, itching can be related to um, mu activation. Uh, it can cause like a histamine release, oh. and they see that often with morphine. I see having like an allergic reaction. Mm-hmm. And in like a neonate, you also see this. Uh, like these are symptoms that you might see. Okay. If they've had an opioid intoxication. Okay. But the the answer that this one kind of goes in is going to be C. It's shallow breathing, the unconsciousness, and the meiosis, right? So the the small pupils they're they're not rousable, and their respiratory rate is depressed. That's like the typical triad that we're talking about. Your alarms in your your brain should be thinking, oh, maybe this patient has OD'd. Exactly. Whenever I see meiosis, I just think opioids. But sometimes like the other ones for sure (laughs) also Mm -hmm. are important. There are a couple of opioids that don't cause um, the meiosis. Let's see. Which one am I thinking of? Demerol. Meperidine. Oh, okay, okay, okay. It doesn't cause meiosis. So, meperidine does not cause meiosis, right? Yeah. So, Demerol, which is uh, an exception and exceptions make great test questions. Ah, I see. I see. That's good to know. Um, let me see if there's anything 
about tramadol that's important. So tramadol is a is a good medication, right? Because it it's a weaker mu agonist, uh, so it doesn't have as good of uh, opioid kind of effects, right? Right. But it's also a serotonin blocker. So the the con, the contraindication to a tramadol use is a MAOI or uh, SSRI use okay. because that can cause serotonin syndrome, right? Right, right. That makes sense. Okay, so I think that's very important about tramadol. So it inhibits serotonin reuptake, so it can potentially lead to serotonin syndrome. Yeah. Okay. No. Um, and it can cause seizures apparently too. Yeah, the CNS side effects are um, fairly common. Okay. Are there any other special ones you want to talk about? Those are those are good. The other. Um, you know, because one of the symptoms of opioids is constipation, uh, we've, you know, kind of leveraged that uh, side effect for patients who have diarrhea. And that's what uh, loperamide does. Mm -hmm. So, loperamide is a, is a medication that actually doesn't really have much CNS effect, um, but it does have a effect on the, the GI system. And uh, like other opioids, it, you know, kind of slows gastric motility and can lead to constipation, which is the goal and as an anti-diarrheal. Okay. Okay. Loperamide and I think diphenoxylate, right? Diphenoxylate was um, the same. Mm -hmm. So, yep. That's true. It causes decrease in intestinal fluid secretions leading to like it stops basically diarrhea. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's an easy one to like put together because that's like a side effect of taking opioids, right? Right. I think um, another one is dextromethorphan, which is given for cough. Right. So, that's the main, main ingredient in cough syrups. Mm -hmm. And that works as a cough suppressant. Okay. Okay, that's the weak opioid receptor agonist, also NMDA receptor antagonist, and that one also inhibits serotonin reuptake too. Right. But yeah, so that's another concern. Is the cough suppressant? And then the fun fact about it is that it, uh, if they're taking it, it can cause a, a false positive on their urine drug screen for um, PCP. Oh wow! I did not know that. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah, it shouldn't come up for an opioid um, because it's not a, it's like a synthetic opioid that doesn't get tested with the, um, with the urine drug screen. Wow. Maybe newer ones, but like the typical. That, that would be awful if that happened on a drug test to anyone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, do you have any other tidbits you'd like to add? Do you want to talk about anything else? Let's try to do one more question. Okay. Let's see. So we already hit on these other questions with the stuff that we talked about. So I don't feel I don't want to waste anyone's time and go through them again. The way we could do that is we could just read it and then they could uh, have someone move it ahead. But we kind of already talked about the the naltrexone. You had to wait before you start it because of the symptoms and the withdrawal, and then the clonidine for um, symptomatic relief. Right. Mm -hmm. I think those are good for the questions. Unless there's one that you like and you want to see. No, I think those are good. One thing I didn't talk about in this question here is it asks about you need to monitor LFTs. Mm -hmm. Naloxone has a naloxone and Narcan can cause hepatotoxicity. 
oh, okay, so naloxone, um, Narcan can cause hepatotoxicity. So that's why you'd want to monitor your LFTs. Do you know yep. how often, like this is just random, but do you know how often we would monitor them after we've been giving them naloxone? I don't. I imagine they actually have like a amount of time that I, but I think you're going to want to give it, you're going to want to check them before and then like a month after and then maybe, I don't know if they need monthly monitoring or if you can do it, you can space it out afterwards. So I'm not totally sure about how they like to do it. Okay, no problem. Let me see. Do you want to discuss the ceiling effect in regards to opioids, like certain ones that have it, certain ones that don't? For example, uh, morphine, um, it's a full opioid receptor agonist. It doesn't have an upper limit, so there is no ceiling effect. So basically, if you have an increased dose, the more you increase your dose, the more response you'll have. And there's really no cutoff point for that. Whereas for a partial agonist like buprenorphine, uh, it does have an upper limit. So after a certain point, no matter how much you increase the dosage, it doesn't increase the response, but the side effects do get increased. Yeah. So healing effects. The the importance for the, the ceiling effect, I think, is for respiratory suppression, right? So what you'll find is if you take too much drug, you can overdose. And if you take enough of it, you can stop breathing. That's where these overdoses really kind of pivot on is when people stop breathing, they die. So the the ceiling effect is most important for someone who is taking a medication or taking a drug and getting those effects from it, the the high. And then over time, they need more drug to sustain that same high or achieve that same feeling, correct? Yes, correct. So what they end up doing is they take more and more and then they have these, they may have more and more effects. The other situation there is then if someone ends up off the medication for a long period of time or they go through a withdrawal and now they're relapsing, they, their body isn't used to tolerating that amount of the, the drug, whereas before it kind of had upregulated um, the, the enzymes to help clear it. Uh, in this case, they, they take the medication dose at the doses that they were taking prior to their withdrawal. And because there's no ceiling, they, they keep going and um, their, their withdrawal or their overdose is much stronger than it previously would have been. And, and that's how they end up um, passing away. Uh, when their their uh, respiratory suppression leads to complete apnea, right? Right. Um, you mentioned that some medications have ceiling effects and others do not. Uh, my my main understanding of it is that things that are partial are more likely to have ceilings uh, and be difficult to lead to um, you know a full overdose, whereas things that are full agonists can cause um, may not have a ceiling and may. Can, you can continue up titrating the dose uh, to experience effects. Exactly. And I think that's where a lot of the deaths um, occur as well, is people don't, don't realize that, you know, the more they take, their body can't keep compensating for it. And eventually they will, they will pass away from it. Yeah. And that's a terrible situation. I, and obviously, like, it's one of those things where you really have to educate the patient that, um, and, and I mean, obviously, you think the best of your patients and you don't want them to be on a medication. But if they take, if they are in the hospital and go off of it and go through a withdrawal or something, for some reason, they're withdrawn or no longer on the medication. 
if they're going to re- going to restart it, they they can't take it this at the same dosage that they're used to taking it at because of those problems. Exactly. Do you have anything else you want to add in general overall about this topic? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really important topic. You know, I I think that in medical school you're taught a lot about asking questions about pain and that we should treat people's pain and we we aren't really educated well about how to avoid these kind of problems. We're just told about them. So, you know, I think the importance importance of knowing, you know, what are alternatives and how do you uh, avoid using this medicate these medications at all costs. Um, you know, is really important for these patients. Uh, you'll see patients like um, sickle cell patients, for instance, and they they're going to need medications like this. And uh, you're uh, not to say it's a slippery slope, but you know, it kind of is when you when you're putting on these all of these patients on this medication. Um, you're going to have some that have problems and uh, looking for it and finding ways to kind of avoid it are, are kind of key, you know, if you're aware that that's the situation with your patient uh, before it gets out of hand, I think it's more important. Uh, the longer you let this thing go, the the more likely they are to uh, wind up having bigger problems and um, not not recovering from it. Exactly. I think you're absolutely right. And I think the biggest thing we learned in medical school also was trying to identify who was purposefully seeking opioids. We were taught, you know, like we've talked about earlier, someone who comes in for their first time um, about an accident years ago, trying to look for um, pain medication, saying that they were prescribed opioids in the past and they helped and, you know, looking for like patients with these kind of drug seeking behaviors. And at the same time, like you said, trying to figure out when we should prescribe them, how long they should be prescribed for. It's a very, very uh, fragile balance, I think. And hopefully, you know, in the up and coming future, they have they have better pain medications that aren't as addictive as, as opioids. They work great for pain, but they're, they come at a cost. So, yeah, I think it's important to tell people and help them accept that uh, pain is okay and pain is natural. So, uh, you know, helping people understand that they'll have pain is, um, you know, it's a tough conversation, but it's a worthwhile one. Right. I think it's very important communicating with patients as well. This is another question. A 37-year-old male presented to your clinic as an injection drug user who predominantly uses heroin. He also admits to smoking crack cocaine and marijuana. He's been using these substances for many years. When he cannot get opioids, he will take benzodiazepines, though he clearly expresses a preference for opioids. On initial workup, you find that he is positive for hep C and clinically does not have severe liver impairment. The remainder of his chemistries, including a CBC, CMP, including LFTs, are within normal limits. He is HIV negative on screening. He is eager to start buprenorphine naloxone treatment. What do you tell him? So for this patient, we discussed this, that they would need to have their LFTs monitored because naloxone can, it can cause hepatotoxicity. For option A, so buprenorphine, naloxone is absolutely contraindicated with hep C. B, buprenorphine, monoproduct is preferred in the hep C positive population. C, buprenorphine is contraindicated with hep C. D, buprenorphine, naloxone can be started and we will need to monitor LFTs. 
Or E, the only appropriate treatment for him due to his hep C is methadone. Yeah, so this is an interesting question because they tell you the patient has hep C and、um, potentially has some liver complications, right? You know, the reason that we, we don't like to use naloxone or Narcan or naloxone or、um, naltrexone in patients with hepatitis or liver impairment is because it has the potential of causing hepatotoxicity, right? Right, yes. So things like、um, buprenorphine are kind of preferred. Just because it, it would avoid that potential. However,、um, you know, hepatitis C, if it's not clinically active and if it's being, particularly if it's being treated and you're doing monitoring, you, you should be safe to prescribe naloxone for.、Uh, so, A, that it's absolutely, absolutely contraindicated with hepatitis C is not true because you can watch for the, you can watch for the hepatotoxicity and see if they have. Any liver、um, problems after starting the medication, right? Right. Then, and for the same reason, you know, buprenorphine monoprodot is preferred. That's sort of, you know, trying to say, you know, maybe we should use it because of it doesn't have the hepatotoxicity. So, but it's not actually preferred. It's just another option. If you are, if they do have the hepatotoxicity, you could use the buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is not contraindicated in hepatitis C. Uh, so, the, the correct answer here is that buprenorphine and naloxone can be started, and you're going to monitor their LFTs to see if they have any problems with their liver afterwards. Okay,、um, that makes sense. And the vignette says that he doesn't have severe liver, liver impairment or、um, any remarkable LFT changes. So, as long as we're monitoring that, like you said, we would just do the buprenorphine and naloxone. Exactly. It's a good、okay. question. Awesome. And then let, let me read you one and see what you think here. So, a 33 year old male presents to your addiction clinic with pinpoint pupils and reports using heroin two hours ago. He's requesting treatment for his opioid use disorder and reports that he has previously tried both buprenorphine and methadone, both of which have been ineffective. After a full assessment, you determine that naltrexone is an appropriate treatment alternative. Which of the following is the most appropriate course of action when starting naltrexone in this patient? Is it A, provide an IM injection of naltrexone immediately, given this patient's high likelihood of ongoing heroin use and the need to immediately treat? B, provide the patient with an oral dose of naltrexone immediately, wait six days, and then provide an IM injection? C, start the patient on oral naltrexone immediately? D, tell the patient he must abstain from all opioids for at least five days before initiating naltrexone? Or E, Give a dose of the nasal spray naloxone before giving an IM injection of naltrexone. So, what do you think, Mariah? So, before I try answering, could you explain to me why we would do the five day thing again? Just because I want to make sure I don't confuse the, like, the audience. Yeah, sure. So, he just used heroin two hours ago.、Mm-hmm. So, he's on opioids, right? So, a patient who is on opioids, if they aren't overdosed, If you give them a, or anybody who has pain in general who's being treated with an opioid, if you give them a dose of naltrexone or naloxone, that's going to give them an inhibitor of their opioid. So if they have a reason for that medication, or if they are a user of that medication,、uh, giving the, the antagonist will lead to a withdrawal. Okay, perfect. I just wanted to make sure that was it. Um, awesome.、Mm-hmm. And they're both like it's an antagonist, right? Like that's why. 
it would right. awesome. Okay. Yeah. So, so in this case, like you're going to see that there, if you were to give it right then, uh, they would have a withdrawal episode in your office. And that's probably not the situation you want. Right. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So um, for this patient, we see that he just used heroin two hours ago. So he has um, opioids in his system. So if we were to give him something like naltrexone, which is an antagonist right away, like an option A, that would actually cause him to go through withdrawal. So we wouldn't want to give him naltrexone immediately. Um, so option A is out. Option B says provide the patient with an oral dose of naltrexone, wait six days, and then provide an IM injection. So that's also out. Option C says start the patient on oral naltrexone. So that's also out. Regardless of like the IM injection or oral, we don't want to give them the antagonist right away. And option D, which is the correct answer, um, you tell the patient that, that he must be abstinent from all opioids for at least five days before initiating naltrexone. Um, that way, it should be out of his system and, and initiating naltrexone won't induce a opioid withdrawal in this patient. And yeah. So, in this case, they need a withdrawal clinic or something before they start the naltrexone just because you're trying to avoid uh, the, the situation where you give them the medication and then all of a sudden they're in terrible with like complete withdrawal. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And it wouldn't matter if it's nasal spray or IM or oral. We just wouldn't want to give them anything right away. But yeah. If they're not overdosed. and it, So, Im imagine if a regular patient comes to your clinic and they've had surgery and they're on an opioid that's you know a reasonable thing for them to have. And then you were to just give them a dose of naltrexone just because. I mean, you wouldn't. But if you did, then all of a sudden, all their pain control from the medication would be gone. And they would be having terrible symptoms and terrible pain or terrible withdrawal if they were, you know, a little bit addicted, anything like that. So you, you would avoid that because you, you don't want the patient to unnecessarily suffer. And by giving them time for their opioids to leave their system before you start the medication that's going to antagonize the opioids. After which, if they use the opioids, they're not going to get the same kind of relief. But the, you know, you want to get the opioids out of their system so they don't have those immediate withdrawal symptoms right before the medication. Okay, that makes sense. Um, yeah. uh, so another question we have is a 23-year-old female with a history of opioid use disorder currently on methadone maintenance therapy at a dose of 120 milligrams daily presents to your family medicine clinic in a state of opioid withdrawal. She explains that she has an upper respiratory infection for the last two to three days and has been unable to go to the methadone clinic for the past 48 hours. Your exam reveals a resolving viral bronchitis and moderate opioid withdrawal. She's requesting to be provided with one-day prescription for methadone, given that the clinic has closed for the day, and assures you that she will re-engage with her methadone program tomorrow. She has provided documentation verifying her dose. Which of the following is the most appropriate course of action? A, provide symptomatic relief for the patient's withdrawal symptoms with clonidine. B, provide the patient with a one-day prescription of methadone, given that this is permissible by law in your state. C, switch the patient to buprenorphine maintenance therapy. D, provide the patient with half of her methadone dose in a written prescription. 
or E, start the patient on naltrexone? Ooh, this is a good question. Yeah. Okay. So um, this patient has previously been on methadone for a while now, and now they're in withdrawal. They're, all, they're taking 120 milligrams of methadone, which doesn't probably mean much to you, but that's a, that's a sizable dose. That's not, um, they're not quite ready to stop methadone. And, you know, looking at it, they've been unable to get their methadone dose for two days now. So, they're, they're, because this is a long-acting opioid, you know, they may get two days of relief before they start having withdrawal. So, in this case, you know, you're probably not able to give them methadone, but it really depends. But the best thing for them to do is just to get back into the system and not, not double-dose their methadone. Because if you give them methadone whenever they're in the clinic, say this is like the afternoon, you give them their methadone dose and then they go to the methadone clinic tomorrow, they may get too much. That makes sense? Yes. Because uh, the, the dosing is pretty fickle for methadone. So, what you should just do in the meantime is try to give them some symptomatic relief until they make it to the clinic. They're not going to be totally detoxed from methadone by then anyway. So, they should be okay. You know, that's like, that is a reasonable thing to provide them relief and to just give them the clonidine, which is uh, we talked about. Uh, has alpha-2 effects, so it can reduce some of the, the irritability, some of the autonomic symptoms associated with withdrawal, right? Right. The, okay. the other options, you know, um, you know, starting switching the patient to buprenorphine therapy, that's an option. You could start them on something else, but, you know, unless they're going to start following up with you for that and stop the methadone, it's going to be kind of iffy. And buprenorphine because it's a partial agonist and you give it with methadone. I'm trying to think if this is correct if it will call if it can cause some withdrawal symptoms because it's only partially agonistic, right? So like if it captures those receptors from the full agonist, then it's also going to cause some withdrawal for a patient. Right, yes, it does it does like displace other opioids from the receptor, so. Yeah. So you don't you don't just switch a patient to it. And then having the dose is, you know, kind of trying to work the system with the like, we, we want to give her some, but not the full dose. Uh, it's probably just more difficult than it's worth figuring out. Um, plus, you probably can't give it and you probably don't have it to give. Right. And then starting the patient on naltrexone. So, we already talked about the, the opioids you having to be kind of detoxed from before you start the naltrexone or you'll initiate a full withdrawal. If she was really you know, pretty far along in her withdrawal, if she had come in and now it's been a week since she's had methadone and her, her opioid symptoms are starting to maybe, maybe subside, then she's basically withdrawn from methadone. There's no point in restarting her on methadone at that point. Right, right. Because now you're just giving someone opioids for the sake of it. And the whole point is that we get them off of it. So, uh, I mean, you could potentially give someone naltrexone after they've detoxed to make sure that they, uh, if they were to re-engage with um, opioid use, then they wouldn't have the benefit. But this, this patient isn't far enough along for that yet. Makes sense. Well, Mariah, thanks for talking with me about these. Uh, this was a good discussion. I know it's an important one for the podcast. Um, hopefully, this gives us a couple episodes that we can talk about. Um, I know it's a really, you know, critical topic that people should be interested in knowing more about. Thank you so much for your time. I learned a lot. I hope our listeners learn a lot as well. And I think that's all we have for today. 
And thank you everyone for listening. We really appreciate your time and uh, you enjoying our podcast. If you if you really like it, uh, share it with your friends and give us a rating on iTunes. That's always really helpful. We have an application where you can get all of our latest episodes as well as access to our All Audio QBank. And feel free to give us a rating on there as well. It's really helpful. And have a great day. Happy studying. 